welcome back to another episode of City Hall Pass. I'm Kapel Lungani, counsel to the mayor of New York City. We created this forum, the first of its kind in New York City, to give you, the public, a unique window into the highest levels of our city government. We interview New York City's finest public servants and get them to open up in a way that is both deeply personal and insightful. And on its best days, we hope that our podcast is equal parts educational and inspiring. And now I want to introduce my two co-hosts today, two brilliant women who inspire me every day, Best Chu and Kate Coughlin. Thanks, Capel. Happy to be here. This is Best Chu. I'm currently Chief of Staff to the Office of the Council to the Mayor. Hi, I'm Kate Coughlin, and I currently serve as Deputy Counsel for the Office of the Council to the Mayor. I want to introduce our guest today, the Deputy Mayor for Strategic Policy Initiatives at the New York City Mayor's Office, Phil Thompson. Appointed in 2018, Deputy Mayor Thompson is responsible for spearheading a diverse collection of priority initiatives. He also serves as co-chair on the city's task force on racial inclusion and equity and as commissioner on the city's racial justice commission. Prior to joining the administration, Deputy Mayor Thompson was an associate professor of urban planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is the author of Double Trouble, Black Mayors, Black Communities, and the Struggle for Deep Democracy. He has an extensive background in city government, having previously served in Mayor Dinkins' administration as the deputy general manager for operations and development, and before that, served in the Manhattan Borough President's Office. We spoke with the deputy mayor about his unique upbringing as the son of an influential preacher, his lifelong commitment to fighting for racial justice, his vision for the future of our city, and much more. We hope you enjoy. So, Deputy Mayor, I understand that you grew up in Philadelphia and you had a father who's an influential preacher involved in the civil rights movement with contemporaries such as Martin Luther King Jr., who you met as a child. What do you remember about Dr. King? Well, my dad became very ill when I was five. He died when I was seven. I think I was around six, and I remember Dr. King giving me a present. I really liked boats when I was a kid, and he gave me this it was like a board with uh, nails in it. And there was thread like woven on the board. And it was just, that's just something that made him stick out to me in my mind. And he spent a lot of time talking to me. I remember that. But back in those days, we actually had ministers coming through every week almost for dinner. And what I remember are all the conversations. And and I think people, when they think about history, tend to lionize individuals, and you kind of lose sight of the fact that what was happening then was a movement that involved so many people and so many brilliant minds and so much commitment. I remember Joe Kirkland saying that when Martin Luther King came to Philly to go to uh, divinity school, he was not political, and we politicized him. My father, when he got out of divinity school, became assistant pastor at our family church, which was called Mount Olivet Baptist Church. And Reverend Marshall Shepard was the pastor at Mount Olivet, who had been a civil rights leader in the 1920s and 30s. He was very close to Martin Luther King's father. Martin Luther King went to Crozier in part to be mentored by Marshall Shepard. And Marshall Shepard also was the first black state elected official in Pennsylvania, was elected to the state Senate. He was also on President Truman's committee that he set up to desegregate the military, like a, kind of like a racial justice commission. Marshall Shepard was on that. Marshall Shepard was a far bigger figure when I was growing up than Martin Luther King, right? 
Marshall Shepard was kind of the one who was mentoring all these preachers. Um, there is so much history, so many people. The stories are so engaged. And one of the things that Andy Young said, he wrote in the introduction to a book called The Closing Door about integrating schools. He said, we all knew affirmative action wasn't what the movement had demanded. The movement had demanded full employment. We knew that affirmative action would only benefit the upper middle class of black folks. But we were scared. We knew if we pushed too hard on those economic issues, or at least we were afraid that we would get attacked the way King was. He said that. And, and I remember that, too. There was fear. You worked for the only black mayor of New York City, Mayor David Dinkins. In fact, you wrote a book about black mayors called Double Trouble, Black Mayors, Black Communities, and the Call for a Deep Democracy. You said in referring to the book that, quote, the point of the book was really to explain the problem of trying to use City Hall to change policies on behalf of low-income people when there are all sorts of entrenched interests that basically push in the other direction. If we have another black mayor, based on your experience in the Dinkins administration, what advice would you give them to maximize their effect? I, I think the, the thing that both pushed and enabled Dinkins to change policies in regard to poverty or public housing or you name it, was concerted pressure from both labor and community organizations. I think that essential for any mayor who wants to really change policy in the direction of helping poor people, you need to have organized constituents outside who will back you up and also push you. But you, you have to get the city council to go along, or you might need the state legislature to go along. You can't do that just from the walls of City Hall. You need all these other folks who are on the same page. So that was one of the main conclusions that came out of my study of black mayors around the country. Affordable housing has been one of the administration's greatest priorities. Deputy Mayor, can you talk about how your experience at NYCHA in the 90s influenced your commitment? I fell in love with the residents, and I still am close to a lot of the resident leaders from back then. You know, Ethel Velez, who's still a resident leader at Johnson Houses in East Harlem, or the head of the Tenant Association in Astoria Houses is the same woman in Queens as it was then. And, and so I saw these residents are hardworking, good people who have a lot of obstacles and struggles in their way. I thought and still think that public housing can be a way where people can get the necessary social supports that they need in order to thrive. But Beginning with the first Bush administration, there have been a lot of cuts in public housing and an attitude shift to where these people were undeserving. And, you know, a lot of programs that were very successful we had in New York were cut. Public housing, we used to run two high schools in New York. And the high schools were for vocational training. And if you had a B average or better, you were guaranteed a job with the housing authority. And the basement of Martin Luther King Houses in Harlem had an extensive facility for training people on HVAC, on plumbing and carpentry. All that stuff was cut, even though it was amazingly successful. I went to a high school graduation back then of this high school and cried because the enthusiasm and the pride of the parents and the kids and the spirit was just so wonderful. It was cut for larger political reasons. I've always felt that we can make a big difference, that public housing, affordable housing can make a big difference. Originally, when public housing was constructed in New York, 
River Houses in Harlem was built on the river. It was actually meant for people who could leave the apartment and have open space and river views and go sit by the river. It had social programs. Moses, Robert Moses, built a highway, then cut them off from the river, and then all the social programs got cut. So it was actually turned from something that really was a gateway for poor people to like rise into a containment kind of mentality. When public housing was built in Harlem in the 1960s, um, they didn't put seats on the toilets or doors on the closets because they wanted to convey the message that you don't deserve this. And that goes to the history of this country, where by the time most people of color even arrived, property had been grabbed before folks were even allowed to buy or own property. This is centuries of slavery and segregation and exclusion. And then you show up and there's only so much land. You know, we tend to talk about real estate as an abstraction, like markets as abstractions. Property is land. Real estate is land. There's only so much of it. And as your populations grow, if people who were there first, not even there first, if they were privileged by law to gain land where you were not, you were prohibited, then they have a monopoly. And so I feel that that's a fundamental injustice that's kind of built into the law, built into Supreme Court decisions, but it is unjust. And that for that reason, I support like a right to affordable housing because I believe everyone has a right to live in a city without their future sucked out of them by landlords who who, because of injustice, are in a position to exploit. So you've gone to Peru and Haiti after natural disasters, and you visited New Orleans after Katrina. What did those experiences teach you that you apply today in your role as deputy mayor? A lot about the importance of community organization and cohesion, because both in New Orleans, truthfully, as well as Haiti and in Peru, government failed. Government was just not, not responsive during the crisis. And it was these communities that on their own had to figure out how to survive. A lot of horrible things happened in, in each of those places. So that was one lesson. Second lesson was from a planning and environmental climate change standpoint, I came to appreciate that these centralized systems for providing energy and water and other essential services need to be decentralized so that they can actually function in the midst of, you know, a huge flood or an earthquake or other kinds of disasters. And so you need many, many redundant, essentially community-based microgrids, water filtration and accumulation systems, et cetera. That's far more sustainable, makes a lot more sense. But that also requires having community capacity to really get involved in planning and operating those things and working together to build those systems. Those were huge takeaways for me. You believe strongly in the digital revolution, namely artificial intelligence. And I think we're seeing this more and more in automated vehicles, the targeted ads I receive on my cell phone, and in the ways stores such as Amazon are now transitioning to robots in their warehouses that oftentimes replace workers. So I definitely think there's good and bad to artificial intelligence. What do you think the city will look like in 10 years? I think that we're in the midst of a digital revolution and a transition from the traditional manufacturing analog economy to a computerized economy, digitally driven. AI is a big piece of it, but also advanced manufacturing, 3D printers, new ways of making things. 
So I think one huge change we're going to see is a lot of things that we import now from all over the world will be made locally and will also be designed locally. There's no reason to import shoes from Italy or Taiwan, you know, or elsewhere. You can actually make them with a 3D printer and you can actually walk into a store and design them and they'll laser your foot and it'd be just for you. Same with cars, with electric vehicles. No need to ship them from around the world and have super tankers going to Newark. You can actually design a car for your use in particular. And so cars don't have to look like they do now. They don't need to be as big. They could be stackable like shopping carts. We won't need so many parking lots. There'll be ride sharing much more frequently than we see now where people have smartphones. There'll be pre-programmed routes for cars. You'll just jump in, jump out. You won't need a car. So I think that car ownership will go way down. I think the cars we see will be made right here. New jobs will be created mainly in design as well as, you know, car assembly. Gas stations, what we have now, will be more like assembling cars. I also think traffic will be traffic manager in the cloud. It, it won't be stoplights and stop signs. It'll actually be much more safe and efficient because it'll be done digitally. It raises all kinds of issues about ownership and property. A private company like Google, if you allow them to own the infrastructure that actually runs the cloud, that directs traffic. And I said this to the Ford Motor Company like four years ago. Ford, I, tell, I said, you'll be working for Google. You better pray that government owns this infrastructure or else everybody's going to be working for one of these. And we'll no longer have like an open economy. It'd be just like a few, you know, these big players like scooping up everything. That is a danger because government is so far behind right now where technology is and where things are moving. Like we aren't even debating. We're letting Verizon and others control like broadband. And that is dangerous. It's like saying a private company can own the bridges and the roads and the stoplights and charge people whatever they want, you know, to use a street. That's literally what we're doing right now. And given where the economy is going, where everything is going to be utilizing this stuff, this is true, the infrastructure of the 21st century that we're talking about here. We wouldn't even consider allowing private companies to own all the infrastructure that we use for, for highways and for aircraft flight patterns. We're going to allow that all to be privatized. That's what we're doing with in the digital space right now. So I think we're about to see momentous changes which could be hugely beneficial to society. For example, when I worked in Haiti, there was an architecture school with six books in the whole school. Columbia University, through Microsoft, digitized their entire architectural library a decade ago with 400,000 books or something. All it takes for those books to be available in Haiti is a flip of a switch. It's an, basically a licensing agreement where Columbia would allow them to access to their library. That's it. Imagine what that would do for education for, of architects in Haiti, right? That opportunity exists worldwide for everyone to have access to all of these resources, everything. It all depends on who owns that infrastructure and, and how we deploy it. So we're at a revolutionary point, I believe, in terms of what the economy can be and could be. So much wealth is possible. We don't even have to argue over money. What's holding us back right now is just our property laws, our conception of property, our conception of how to create wealth are all based on 17th, sometimes 16th century ideas. 
totally unnecessary now. And actually, it inhibits. The Linux operating system, which is what IBM uses now, what Apple uses now, at first they tried to kill Linux because Linux was open source. The person who invented it said, I'm just going to create an open platform for engineers everywhere to put in their best ideas, and then we'll make it free for everybody. The big companies said, no, 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 this is terrible. That's against free enterprise. They built it. It works so well. They stopped fighting it. Now they use it. And the thing is, the professor who came up with this had to quit MIT because MIT said, no, we want a patent. He said, patents just hold this stuff back. And he's right. So for the future economy, the most productive force we've seen in human history is actually people collaborating on the internet worldwide together and sharing in whatever the results are, right? Sharing. Nothing comes close to that. In terms of productivity, advancement, wealth creation, nothing comes close to that. The stuff King was talking about, Gandhi was talking, is actually right. King is the one who said, wait a minute, how can Exxon own oil? God put oil. Oil takes millions of years to create. They didn't create this. How can it be theirs? We have to start thinking of resources like that. So, Deputy Mayor, you've worked both in government but also outside of government. And I mean, in your book and in you know a lot of this conversation, you've actually said that you really need the community and the externals. Uh, when Mayor de Blasio called you to discuss you serving in this administration as deputy mayor, my understanding is that you were in Colombia and you were working with the environmental minister and brokering peace deals. What was it about this job that drew you to coming to work here for this administration? Donald Trump. I really felt like our democracy was in danger and that I saw Bill de Blasio in this administration as folks who were trying to fight to maintain our democracy, create examples of what good democratic governance could do for people in their lives versus what Trump was doing. So I felt like if there's an opportunity to be a public servant, now is it. I, I need to do that. You know, I believe that the work in the Amazon was important also, but I just felt like I'm an American at the end of the day, and I felt like I could do something here, and I should. As Deputy Mayor for Strategic Policy Initiatives, you oversee the Mayor's Office of Minority and Women Business Enterprises. You also mentioned earlier that you see the future with technology helping us focus more on local. What do you see as the future of MWBEs, and why is it so important to support them? I think MWBEs have the potential to actually be on the cutting edge of the green economy, of the new digital economy, if we create pathways for them to do that. And frankly, I think MWBEs now are thought of narrowly in terms of construction, but you know, most of them are very small firms and often in personal services like beauty parlors and barbershops, and you're just not going to transform the economy through those means alone. I think there's huge opportunity in these areas that aren't captured by any anyone yet or big firms. The green economy, folks don't even know what it is yet. Same with the digital economy, a lot of opportunity there. So I see that as a pathway for reducing wealth inequality, uplifting women, et cetera. So you've said, I don't think the mayor is risk adverse. I've got to tell you, computers and the internet came from 20 years of consistent funding from government, which took the risk out of it. You could screw up a thousand times, which they did, but the government said it's real strategic for us to develop these systems. No venture capitalist would have put the money in over a 20-year period not knowing what's going to happen. So UPK and 3K were these sort of bold projects at the time that we believe strongly in and now have received national attention. Um, what other programs or ideas should be at the forefront of the city? 
I think government needs to be in the forefront of producing a sharing economy and a more equitable economy or else it isn't going to happen. And I also believe that the notion most people have of what businesses, how they should operate, how they should be run, how government should relate to the economy actually comes from the United States during its slave periods. That's where the idea that you have a boss. Literally, plantation owners were called boss men. It's literal. The notion that people who work in a business shouldn't own it, and they should just do what the, their boss tells them to do, that literally comes from slavery. It was not even what Jefferson or Madison wanted. They thought slavery was an inhibition to the kind of economy we should create. And so I think we have to reimagine government. Uh, now, there's no such thing as a, a market economy without law, you know, and contracts. That's what it is. So the notion that government is somehow not involved, but government isn't involved as a conscious actor with goals in mind, such as equity, such as inclusion, such as, you know, survival of the planet. We have to change that. Now, there are ways we can do that right now as we're thinking about, and Biden is thinking about rolling out recharging stations for electric vehicles. Why do those have to be privately owned? We know everyone's going to use those. Why can't those, just like we charge now for you know a little bit for gasoline tax or whatever, why can't those things be taxed that actually help build what we're talking about at a community level in terms of sustainable infrastructure and all kinds of other things, right? Right now, I'll give you another example. We tax bodegas for selling potato chips. We don't tax Google or Facebook for selling people's data. Anytime you open your phone, they track it, they develop profiles on you, and then they sell that. Oh, this person likes this kind of toothpaste. This person likes this kind of clothes. They like to travel to this area. They sell that to advertisers totally tax-free. That is where 98% of Facebook's profits last year came from, selling people's data. Google's very similar, tax-free. That's just because government is not on top of where the economy is moving and understanding its role. COVID highlighted many of the inequities in our city and led to the launch of the Task Force for Racial Inclusion and Equity, which you co-chair. Why was it so important to you to launch the task force? I felt there was so much pain in the city, particularly last summer. You know, we were having all these protests and um, around um, police brutality. At the same time, you know, people were dying Frontline workers and their families were suffering and people felt like they didn't have a voice, like no one was listening. And I thought we needed to like do something visible to say, yes, we are listening. Yes, we do understand your suffering. And we also understand that it's unearned suffering and that we as a government have a duty to try and be responsive to this suffering and this injustice. So for me, it was not a hard thing, you know, to imagine. It's like the times called for it. I've been lucky enough to get the opportunity to work with you on the Charter Revision Commission, which is also described and deemed as the Racial Justice Commission. Deputy Mayor, you are a big voice on that commission, along with uh, Jennifer Jones Austin, Henry Garrido. Can you tell us a little bit more about why serving on the commission is important to you? Well, I think, as I said earlier, I think slavery is what really deformed our democracy and, and created the kind of unjust economy that we have and also created the basis for the deepest division we have in our society, which is actually not over class or income, it's over race. And it has been all along. So I see the Racial Justice Commission as an opportunity to address this problem head on. So that's what excites me. I believe that the only way that Black people will achieve justice is when everybody achieves justice. If you can convince white people to give reparations to Black people, 
then you don't need reparations because white people will be in such a place where normal policy will be just. And so no need for reparations. The question is, well, how do you convince people who are not you that, you know, reparations are just and make sense? Well, I think it's through showing all the injustice that has affected them as well. So women couldn't vote until 1920. Women have suffered injustice. Most immigrants who come to this country came because of injustice in their home countries that this country often had a lot to do with. So Central Americans, we invaded Guatemala 35 times. We captured half of Mexico. We just seized it militarily and invaded. You know, India was colonized by the British and who oversaw numerous acts of genocide, frankly. 70% of the British army were actually from India and on and on and on. And so when we actually capture everyone's stories and narratives, how we got here, the Irish were colonized for 600 years. By the way, the first black political convention in 1865, after the end of the Civil War, black, the black delegates volunteered to send 50,000 soldiers to Ireland to help them win liberation. You know, things we're not told about our own history. Black folks understood very well then that their own liberation was aided by folks who came from all over Europe, Caribbean, half the Union Army were actually immigrants and volunteers who came from other, around the country to fight slavery. They knew that. And so I feel like reparations are when we understand everybody's story. And then we build a just society for everybody. That, that's where how I see the Racial Justice Commission. That's where I think King was. At least that's how I was taught growing up on how to think about black liberation. It's inseparable. I can't be free unless you're free. And you can't be free unless I'm free. I know you're too busy and humble to really think about legacy. You've got a long way to go. But as you think back upon your accomplishments during this administration, what are, if there was one or two that you could point to, what would they be? The person who used to drive me around a year and a half ago said I was his favorite in 22 years. And so I feel good about that. I feel, <laughs> I feel... You know, I feel change happens, you know, person by person, heart to heart. And so I feel like I've had a great team here. I've gotten to work with great people. And if I've helped to inspire them, you know, to think about things a little differently, do things a little differently, then I think, you know, that's a great legacy for me. Okay, so we are introducing a new game. It's called City Hall Rock. And for this game, the instructions are best explained via song. Via what? Song. Okay. You're going to sing? I'm DM Phil. Yes, I'm Deputy Mayor Phil. And I'm working here with Mayor Bill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the New York City. It's a fun, fun time to work here with Billy. But I know I have a choice of two. I will give those options to you. Know that I will. But today, I am still Deputy Mayor Phil. Okay. So if you didn't understand that, I'm going to give you two choices and you're going to pick one. If I didn't understand it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So bike or subway? Uh, I'm a biker. I like to bike. Off the grid camping or all-inclusive resort? Oh, I am way off the grid. In fact, I'm halfway. <laughs> I'm planning a trip to maybe Bob Marshall Wilderness in Montana or Alaska, like for a few weeks from now. Wow. Freshwater or saltwater fishing? Okay. You, so this is a great question because this is something I spend a lot of time on, actually. So in the lower 48, and this is where I'm going to test Montana, I am mostly about saltwater because 
the freshwater fish are mostly like farm raised now. The native trout, the native fish are, are fished out. And farm raised fish, it is not the same experience as a wild fish. They're used to eating kibble. You know, you throw a fly and they just like watch it go by. They don't even know how to eat flies. They don't even know what to eat. However, I've gone to northern Quebec. I've gone to Alaska like four times fishing and so on. Freshwater fishing there is great. And so that's why I'm testing out Montana. So, so to be determined. Yeah, I'm sorry to go so long on that question, but that's <laughs> big for me. <laughs> it's very emotional, actually, for me. <laughs> More impactful for customers to own their own data or for employers to own a share of their business? The latter. And last but not least, Detroit soul music or Philly soul music? It's Philly. I mean, look, they're both beautiful. Love both of them. My dad used to drive us to Detroit to go visit uh, C.L. Franklin, Reverend C.L. Franklin. And when we would get there, he'd say, okay, you got to come. We'd be so tired. It was 12 hours. Oh, you got to come listen to my daughter sing. And they'd have his daughters in the basement playing piano. And I was like, daddy, do I have to? Not again. I don't want to listen to this. I want to hear the monkeys. I don't want to listen to this. And it was Aretha, right? And her sister. Anyway, I say this to say beautiful music from Detroit. But, you know, Philly to me has special. And it's not only black music in Philly. It's also Hall and Oates, you know. It's also KC and the Sunshine Band. Philly's just got a certain rhythm there. And let's not forget that Coltrane lived in Philly, too. All right. Well, that includes the first and last game of City Hall Rock. Deputy Mayor, thank you so much. All right. Really thank you. It. This you're, is you're fun. The best. I want to thank our guest, Deputy Mayor Phil Thompson, for taking time to join us today. I learn something new every time I have the pleasure of speaking with the Deputy Mayor, and New Yorkers are so very fortunate to have such a progressive thinker at City Hall. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and look forward to talking to you again soon on another episode of City Hall Pass. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of the Council to the Mayor of New York City.